You are listening to a podcast from the National. Hundreds of protesters converged on the streets of the southern Iraqi city of Basra last week. Like the woman you just heard, demonstrators across the province are demanding their fair share of the region's oil revenue. They're also calling for structural change to fix underfunded public services, rampant corruption, a stagnant economy and high unemployment. Residents complain that they only have electricity for around 12 hours a day. Tap water is not safe to drink. The canals that were once the pride of the port city are filled with garbage and sewage. Last summer saw an escalation into violence. Hundreds were killed and wounded in clashes between demonstrators and security forces. Many thousands more were arrested. Government buildings were set alight, as was the Iranian consulate in Basra. The province appeared on the edge of outright revolt. As the temperature soars again this year, many question whether this situation will repeat itself. Because despite last year's unrest, little has changed. The government still suffers from mismanagement and fraud. The country's elite have done little to improve living conditions for the lower classes. So far this year, protests have not yet descended into violence. But the situation remains volatile. As temperatures nudge 50 degrees, public utilities are once again strained and the patience of citizens stretched. Iraq could yet face another summer of bloodshed. This is Beyond the Headlines and I'm your host Campbell McDiamond. This week we're looking at the effect of summer heat on Iraq's crumbling infrastructure. Since last year's violence, the government in Baghdad has pledged to rebuild the country's infrastructure. Following elections, a new government was formed in October 2018. Incoming electricity minister Louis Al-Khatib brought plans to develop solar power and plans to increase electricity production by 25%. These projects are underway, the minister says, but it will take time for people on the ground to see the results. And meanwhile, Basrawis are tired of waiting. Under former dictator Saddam Hussein, who was a Sunni, the Shiite majority south was neglected. Since the 2003 US invasion, things have scarcely improved and the recent four-year war against ISIS has only compounded issues. The South contributed men and money to free much of western and central Iraq from the clutches of the extremist group. Many of Basra's young men were killed in battle, or returned home maimed. Basrawis complained that while state resources are funneled to repair former ISIS areas, their own city remains mired in neglect. So, once again, protesters have taken to the streets. Protests aren't a new thing um, in Iraq. You've had for many years protests throughout the country, but particularly in the south and particularly in the province of Basra, where it it sparked protests throughout the years, but also from 2015 onwards was one of the core areas of protests. And why Basra has become the kind of spark or, or the symbol of these protests is because it's where the inequalities of Iraq are most sort of evident you know, a province that gives most of Iraq's revenue through its its wealth in oil and gas reserves, but a province that remains utterly neglected. And, you know, I've been to Basra a few times, uh, including a few months ago, and you can very much tell how sort of deprived people are and disillusioned they are with the political process, especially, you know, what they say, the post-2003 elite. 
So what you have in the South, and most of Iraq, but in the South as well, is a kind of lack of services. The protesters say there's a lot, you know, they, they complain about the lack of electricity, lack of clean water leading to a crisis, and also unemployment and, and more structural problems. And so what really happens, particularly in the summer, when you really do need electricity to help with coping with the heat, when you need water to help with coping with the heat, um, in the summer, it kind of hits a boiling point. Uh, and so over the years, people have gone out to the streets uh, to demonstrate. And it's really demonstrations and protests, I think, for Iraqis uh, is one of the only ways that they think they can actually have a voice. They don't think the political process speaks on their behalf. They don't think that going to the ballot boxes and elections will bring about change. So really, it's one of the only ways where they feel like they can actually make some kind of a point and, and to kind of relay their grievances. That's Dr. Renard Mansour, a research fellow in the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. The reason why Basrawis are so frustrated goes beyond the lack of services. There is an understanding here that things don't have to be this way, because Basra is unbelievably rich in oil. Its sale accounts for about 90% of Iraq's state revenues. Basrawis just have to look across the border to realise there's something wrong. Basra ought to look like Kuwait City. Instead, much of the city resembles a slum. Corruption is, is at the core of the problem. Fundamentally, what you have is an elite after 2003 that seemed to be more interested in kind of dividing up the national wealth. Like Iraq is a very wealthy country, and so the elite came together to divide the wealth. But none of that wealth actually made it to its way towards the citizens. So here you have in Basra a province that could be wealthier than, than the Gulf countries, but it's just completely destitute. It's completely uh, forsaken to that, you know, to that. And so I think the people are now, especially now that it's in the South, you know, you don't longer have the civil war and you no longer have those kinds of sectarian violence. What you have are people saying, wait a minute, uh, where, where is our government? You know, we, it's been 15, 16 years. We've been promised a better life after the fall of the dictator Saddam Hussein. And yet uh, they, they haven't seen their government. And that is because of corruption. The gap between the citizen and the elite has become one of the main fault lines, I'd say, in Iraq. This obviously makes Basrawis extremely angry. Massive wealth is just below the surface. And yet the living conditions are some of the worst in Iraq, and poverty is increasing. Despite this, though, Dr. Mansour doesn't expect protesters to turn out in quite the same numbers as last summer. So I think 2018, last year, was a pivotal year in the story of protests in Iraq. Pivotal primarily because of, I mean, I think two things. One, that the protesters marched against all political parties, right? So these protesters aren't calling for the change of a party or the change of a regime. They're calling for a systemic change. And they call that, they want to bring down what's known as Mahasasa, which is the quota sharing system that has governed Iraq since 2003, this consociational model. They want to change the entire system. And so last year, the protesters marched on all the parties, including the Shia parties and, and that were meant to represent them if you would follow the kind of sectarian narratives that would be part of Iraqi story since 2003. And the second reason, uh, and this gets back to your question, why 2018 was a pivotal year was because of the introduction of violence. 
and considerable violence. From both sides, you had from the protesters' side, burning of the Iranian consulates and burning of different political offices, including those with the link to the popular mobilization units or some of the governing Shia parties in the south. But also what you had was a repression from the state and state allied forces. So you had, for example, all sort of the, the counterterrorism service, but also the Hajj al-Sha'bi, the popular mobilization units, using force. And in September 2018, in a matter of two days, 8th and 9th of September, about 20, 23 people were killed. And that changed the tone because that introduced into the story of protests in Iraq this, this element of fear. And so what you've seen this year so far, and anyone who's been to Basra and spoken to, the different protest movement uh, leaders, because it's also, it's, it's a very much a leaderless, unified, it's not a unified, cohesive pro movement. But one of the issues they're having is people are scared because many of their friends, many of the people they used to protest with were killed, were shot and killed last year. So this year you haven't seen massive protests yet, partly because of that fear. And partly because as I say, and this is another defining characteristic of the movement, it lacks a leader. It lacks a cohesive sort of element in the South. It's, it's sporadic, it's based on different sectors at different times. But nonetheless, structurally, those grievances that brought so many people to march last year are still there uh, this year. So while the heat alone drove people into the street last year, Dr. Mansour thinks that the looming prospect of violence could be enough to keep people home this year. Here, the Iraqi government got a little bit lucky because, for example, there was a heavy rainfall in the winter, and so the water situation seems to be a bit better than last year. But it's not sustainable. And depending on how much electricity goes out, if it's not enough, then people, of course, will continue to protest. But as I say, the big question right now is whether they will be willing to protest knowing that now there is this precedent that the government and government allied armed groups may shoot on them or may repress them. Uh, and so the fear has been introduced into this, into this game. I would say that for sort of mass movement and mass mobilization to be seen this year, people will have to be willing to make that decision. And second, and which is also important to all this, is to what role the political elite will play. For example, in the last few years, the Shia cleric uh, Muqtada al-Sadr has been someone who has sort of been able to mobilize masses. Uh, and until now, he's kind of still not officially supporting the protests, but actually trying to still support the government. So there's so many different political dynamics at play to kind of question how, to what extent uh, the protest will occur this year. But nonetheless, if you, as you say, there's a heat wave. And, uh, and if, the, you know, the heat gets up to the mid-50s and there's no electricity or water, then I would imagine that, you know, again, people will begin to demonstrate. Beyond the perennial issue of the heat and the overworked power grid, there's another complication this year. Iran-U.S. relations have deteriorated, and the tension between the two states is playing out in Iraq. Last May, the U.S. withdrew from the 2015 nuclear deal with Iran. Shortly afterwards, the Trump administration reimposed sanctions. A large tranche of these targeted Iranian energy, and Washington has pressured Baghdad to stop buying electricity from its eastern neighbor. Currently, though, Iraq relies on Iran for about 35 to 40 percent of its power. Washington has granted Baghdad a series of 90-day waivers, meaning it won't yet be punished by the U.S. for buying Iranian power. 
But if Iraq were prevented from importing electricity from Iran, the potential for more unrest in Basra is clear. The Iraqi leadership and most Iraqis have made it quite clear that they do not want their country to continue to be a playground for the U.S.-Iran conflict. And the leadership has even tried to put itself out there as a potential mediator. Um, But of course, that's a sort of far-fetched idea because of how weak the central state is in Iraq. So on the issue of electricity, for example, which is one of the main grievances of the protests, a lot of Iraq's electricity comes from Iran. And so if the sanctions were to cut off Iran's supply to Iraq, we'd be in a huge, it'd be a huge problem. And it cannot be done. And, and I think there are people in the Iraqi government, but also people in the American administration who realize how damaging that would be. Um, and, and this is part of the reason why there have been these waivers, particularly for these resources, um, because of the reliance or since 2003, how reliant Iraq has become on Iran uh, for these services, water, electricity. And so if there are harder sanctions on these issues, I suspect that to kind of help lead to more grievances and more issues by the people. After last year's unrest in Basra, Human Rights Watch looked into the crisis of service provisions in Iraq, and their research has highlighted another major driver of unrest, a lack of clean water. Belkis Villa, senior Iraq researcher for the organisation, explains the situation. In the context of Iraq, one key issue and problem that's been a problem for many, many years is the issue of access to water. Over the last decades, there is less and less water available inside Iraq that's coming down the Euphrates and the Tigris. And this is due to a range of factors, including uh, things very much outside of Iraq's control, like climate change, and then acts taken by neighboring countries like Turkey and Iran that have been carrying out damming activities to keep water inside their borders for things like agriculture and for hydroelectric energy. But then there's also mass pollution being produced inside Iraq and being dumped into waterways without any proper treatment, which has meant that particularly in southern Iraq, you're seeing people suffering from a lack of clean water. In Iraq, because it's a a wealthy country, many people do have the means to buy drinking water instead of relying on their tap water. That's different to many other countries that are suffering similar water problems. That being said, since the 1980s, in certain parts of Iraq, particularly in the south, people have been unable to drink their tap water or cook with their tap water. So what they'd use their tap water for is simply washing themselves, washing fruits and vegetables, maybe, you know, washing dishes, things like that. But they would never use that tap water for any water that they consume, which means, you know, people, even though they might have the means, they are spending a lot of their money on procuring water from private uh, water treatment plants, which is expensive, or even living off bottled water. But one of the most significant impacts that this water situation has had in Iraq is actually on agriculture. The river, the Shat al-Arab, which is where the Euphrates and the Tigris join together, that has, over the years, been intruded by seawater. And as a result, farmers who can't afford to buy all their irrigation water from the private sector, they have to rely on the river and they have to rely on taps to irrigate their land, to feed their livestock. And what we've seen is a dramatic loss in use of agricultural land, with farmers telling me about, you know, hundreds of their date trees dying over the years, 
telling me about how their cows, uh, you know, their fish farms all have been poisoned by the fact that they're feeding them with, with salt water. Fortunately for Iraq, a wet winter this year may have temporarily alleviated some of these issues. Torrential rain at the end of last year and increased snowmelt during the spring have filled Iraq's reservoirs. Although the floodwaters killed dozens, displaced tens of thousands and swept away crops and farmlands, the increased water flow bodes well for the summer months. The one difference and improvement uh, this year uh, versus 2018 is that over Christmas, there was a huge amount of rainfall, some of the highest rates in decades, and snow, meaning increased snowmelt. So there's actually been a lot more water coming down the Tigris River. And authorities in Iraq have said as a result of that, for the next two years, there is essentially enough water in Iraq's reservoirs to mean that you won't have this decreasing flow in the river. And the decreasing flow has been a problem for Iraq because what you've seen is that as less water has come down the Tigris all the way south to Basra, there has been a huge incursion of seawater up into the Shat al-Arab and potentially going even further north and, and risking salt water contaminating the Euphrates uh, River. So as long as there's enough water coming down the river, then you can stop this seawater incursion. And of course, if you have a lot of water in the river, contaminants, pollutants get further diluted. So so this year, this summer, I think the reason that until now the, the protests haven't been so acute is because of this increased water. But of course, that might benefit us this year or next year, but in the long term, because of, as I said, things like climate change, because of damming, because of mismanagement of water inside Iraq, this isn't a long-term solution to the problem. This simply is sort of a band-aid for the next year or two. So in the longer term, what can be done? There are many different factors that have led to the acute crisis in, in, in southern Iraq. Um, some of them easier to address, some of them harder to address. There are definitely things that the government could be doing and could be doing better to ensure safety of its citizens. One uh, very simple thing that comes to mind is the shocking reality that Iraq has no such thing as a public health advisory system. So there are many ministries involved in the water sector, and several of them are frequently conducting environmental and pollution tests on the different waterways. You have testing being done inside the public treatment plants. But if this testing regime finds some type of contaminant in the water, there's no system in place that actually provides the residents of the affected area with some kind of public health advisory to warn them not to use that water. Don't use your tap on these days to wash your dishes, for example. So most countries in the world have some kind of public health advisory system. Iraq should immediately put something like that in place because they have the information, they have the testing regime, but they don't have the ability to communicate with their citizens to warn them. Then another big area is control of pollution. Um, industry, agriculture, even sewage treatment plants dumping waste into waterways not properly treated. So the government needs to take serious action to start better monitoring who are the pollutants and, and what are the pollutants in the water and then making sure that they impose fines and that they that they start cracking down on, on this sort of unfettered pollution. There, there also is a big weakness in that the central laboratory that tests water that goes out to people's taps in Basra 
that central laboratory, first of all, is 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 o- the only one in the governorate, so nowhere near enough in terms of its capacity. But it also is missing half of the equipment that it needs to properly test for water. The head of the laboratory told us, you know, I'm desperate to be testing for other things that I think are in the water, harmful things, but I simply don't have the equipment. And I've asked many times to get it from the, the ministry and I haven't. So that would be a very simple thing, a cheap thing in, in, in this context that the government could do to ensure that they are testing for all of the possible contaminants in the water. But so far, in lieu of action plans, government offices have offered sweeping generalities. I think in the context of of this crisis in Basra and, and the many, many years of inaction, a key driver has been that you have so many government offices, both federal and local, and multiple different ministries that are involved and responsible for the water sector. And essentially what they've been doing for years is playing the blame game. No ministry, no department wants to take ownership and leadership in addressing a specific issue. Instead, all they do is continue to blame the other parts of government for the lack of action. And so I think what you really need to see is, you know, a prime minister, um, uh, several key ministers coming together and saying, you know, enough is enough. The blame game is not helpful. All of us need to sort of pull our socks up and address these problems and address these problems across federal and local government. But until now, there just hasn't been enough leadership or priority put towards coming up with a solution. At this point, many Iraqis are pessimistic about the country's future. Mohammed, a 28-year-old protester from Basra, says he is doubtful Iraq will ever change. I don't think there is going to be any change. It would have taken place during the past protests. I don't think there is going to be any change in these circumstances because of ambiguity in the direction of these protests. And in the midst of the current tensions between Iran and the U.S., we also see Iran trying to win over the Iraqi side in these areas to be in its favor. Or it could be that Iran's government is attempting to destabilize this region for possibly political matters. Low morale and a lack of faith in the government has become something of a state of mind for many Iraqis in recent years. And for people in Basra, the eruptions are once again particularly stark. Suffer in the heat and silence, or risk violence or worse to speak out. As the summer drags on, the outcome of this choice will once again have the potential to ignite further unrest across the country. I've been your host, Campbell McDiarmid, and this has been Beyond the Headlines. Thanks to my guests Balkis Villa and Renard Monsour for joining me this week. This episode of Beyond the Headlines was produced by Hannah Finity, with production support from Aisha Khan and reporting by Mina Aldrubi and Lizzie Porter. If you have enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the program by tapping the subscribe button on your podcast app. Follow more of our coverage on our website, thenational.ae.